Welcome to another episode of the New York Information Security Meetup, and I have the great pleasure to introduce uh, Jill Savinsky, who is a managing uh, director for uh, or managing principal for third-party risk at Crow. Thanks very much, Jill, for joining us. Much appreciated. How are you? Absolutely. Happy to be here. So uh, let's start with a kind of just a background so let people know you. Um, you've been with Crow for 20 years. You've seen, yeah. uh, you know, even saying that probably is kind of a bit shocking to you. Um, but uh, you've seen, so the, the advantage of that, you've seen, uh, you know, the evolution of the third-party risk practice, mm-hmm. you know, throughout. So, well, before we dive into that, maybe like just give us a kind of background on how you started. Sure. Yeah. So I um, I graduated two months after 9-11. So to give you some context of what the world was like when I started in cybersecurity, um, I was an engineer. I didn't know anything about cybersecurity and um, interviewed with Crow. And they said, well, you've got good background in computing. I had done some Y2K work when I was in school and uh, we'll teach cyber, right? That was the age. And um, it was timely because, you know, right after September 11th, almost none of the traditional engineering jobs were proceeding forward. The world was quite uncertain as to what was going to happen. And so I get into cyber sort of accidentally. And I started my career in cyber. I did all the normal stuff, pen testing, security assessments, et cetera. And a couple years into my career, um, I got into data privacy and data breach response, um, which was, I thought, super interesting. So worked on some data breaches. And that is actually how I got into third-party risk because I was working with a client who had just a meticulous security program. Every I dotted and T crossed and just a phenomenal investment in information security. And they had a breach. So um, called me up and said, hey, we had a breach and it's a vendor. It it really, you know, we had all of these gates and walls and um, it wasn't us. It was a vendor that lost all our data, right? All our sensitive data. And so I began working on that project and thought, you know, this is just where the world is going, right? Um, companies are shutting down their own data centers. They are, you know, you know, uh, ending their relationship with app developers in whatever way. And everything is going to this model where I build it once and use it multiple times. And so I have been now in third-party risk for about 12 years and never look back. I really think it's just such an important part of cybersecurity. It really is. And we'll dive into that as well. But it's and things have really changed. Um, you know, it seems like the, you know, if you look at technology and how people use it and also the way that industries are, you know, there's, uh, you know, companies continuously outsource non-essential practices. So, you know, an organization today is not just the organization where they have HR and you know, computing, everything is in-house, everything is outsourced. So it's like a, a network of networks of mm-hmm. uh, third party and then end party, really. Absolutely. Um, but it's so interesting. So you, um, Y2K, you know, I remember it was a thing. <laughs> <laughs> you know? I actually, yes, I worked for one of the big disaster recovery companies. Uh, I was an intern and I ran cable. So they would basically, I mean, I had other parts of my job, but the running cable was the time consuming thing, right? Because these big disaster recovery centers, 
they would have competing equipment in all different cages and we would run hundreds and hundreds of yards of cat five and fiber and so to prepare people for disaster recovery tests. So it was a very rudimentary way to start in networking, but there's nothing more basic than to look at a diagram to figure out what your structure is going to be and then run hundreds of yards of cable. Yeah, it's amazing. That's that's what we talk about, like really hands-on. You know? <laughs> I've never done it again, but so, so I you could say in, I've spent, you know, I spent hundreds of hours in a data center. How's that? And, and, <laughs> Those don't and exist anymore and the way they used to. Yeah, and it's interesting because back in the day, you didn't have to necessarily have those watches where you have to do like your 10,000 steps. I'm sure that you've, you've done more <laughs> than that where... Oh, man. I mean, we were crawling half the time running it under the raised floor, right? So, um, and, yeah. And it's, and it's amazing because Y2K was such a big thing. Companies yeah. were completely freaking out, um, mm-hmm. you know, and then uh, and then September 11 hit. And then it was, uh, you know, there was uh, this immense um, uh, kind of movement towards securing things, right? It was all yeah. of a sudden they came into like the frontal lobe that we have to, you know, we're not, we don't live in a safe, safe place. That's um, it. So, and then it's also interesting that you were, you have the kind of the engineering background and you came in from, from a, an actual incident. Do you remember what it was? Like the first, you yeah. mentioned you were kind of working on kind of the first, the first uh, incident. Yeah, I do. Like, um, yeah, it was a, um, it was a company's primary web application, and it was something very similar. It's very simple in that the the site, you know. Um, here, let me. I'm gonna I'm gonna show Dublin really quick because I know you wanted. I know you guys yes. have dogs on the pot, and then I'm gonna let her. This is Dublin. <laughs> she is a two year old Australian Labradoodle, and she is my COVID puppy. So it's it's always interesting when your COVID puppy turns two. You know, we've been at this a long time. Say hi, Dublin. <laughs> so she's on, go run off. she's on the, she's a de-stressor on those difficult calls. I'm sure. Oh, she is. She is. She's my work <laughs> from home buddy. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it was, it was something very simple and um, it was that the, the developers had cached credentials so that if you moused over a part of the page, you could see the cached credentials that were admin level credentials. So something very basic, right? Not um, like they were missing a firewall or an IDS or something that would predominantly show up on a third party questionnaire. It was just honestly sloppy development practices. And so a lot of what we worked through at the time was, gosh, this is something so esoteric in cybersecurity. Like, who would put a credential so that it shows up on the bottom of the browser when you mouse over? Like, and how do we um, and, control and who, for that in a large population? And who found it? it must have been just completely by coincidence, right? Where they? Yeah, and it, right? it it honestly was. Yeah, somebody a, a whistleblower of sorts, I guess you'd say, that found it and reported it. So was it, do you know if it was exploited or was it um, strictly? So that's another thing that came up that, that really, so there were insufficient activity logs to determine whether it had been exploited. And so that was another real key part of how I started in third-party risk was these companies were standing up so quickly, right? So you figure before, this is, this is 20, what, this has, this has got to be 20, 10, let's call it 20. I think it was 2009, actually, maybe it was 13 years ago. Um, but it was right at the time where company was like, hey, we've got 20 developers. Do we want to continue to have 20 or 200 
or 500 developers, right? Developing our own apps. So this was a case where a company had taken a core app to their business and outsourced it. And so you had this sort of sloppy control problem, but then you also had a total absence of logs. And when we started to dive into why, it's because that's, if I'm going to start a startup, I mean, today, I think logs are way more accessible and standard. But at the time, I just wanted functionality. I wanted it to work so I could sell it. I wasn't thinking about what's the granularity of activity logging that helps me respond to a breach. And so, yes, that was a key control that was missing that led to the inability to really quantify the impact of this particular breach. You know, it's amazing um, listening to you and, you know, we just take kind of almost the same, but just to label it differently and fast forward like 10, 15 years and it's the same. Because, Absolutely. You know, it's really remarkable because companies still, especially startups, they run so fast to go to market. Um, and then software developers, uh, you know, the whole um, the whole embeddings, you know, security in uh, security controls into processes, and they, none of it is exists. I mean, there are some mat- more mature companies, obviously, but it's not it's not typically the case. Um, yeah. And but let me talk to you about this. Was back then was it even considered third party, or is it just just a vendor that had an issue? Was it was it yeah, was it even a, a good name? point? I mean, mm-hmm. I think vendor was a more common term back in those days, Mm -hmm. just because the predominant language or the predominant regulatory frameworks at the time were GLBA and HIPAA that were um, really speaking to this problem. And so GLBA considered a vendor and HIPAA considered it a business associate. Um, and, And then you began to see maybe eight years ago, use of the term third party because companies you know, in, in all of the merger and acquisition swings that we've had, you know, with availability of credit and interest rates, et cetera, over the past 20 years, you see this swing of, hey, it's not just a vendor relationship. We might own them. We might co-own them. We might have an investment stake in them or, you know, partner with them where we're paying them money um, or they're paying us money. You know, so I do think that it started out as vendor and then quickly, shifted to third party as companies um, changed the way that their ecosystem worked, you know, as in different waves of the economy. But it wasn't, it wasn't as, um, as front and center as it is today. I mean, today you, you talk about the majority, if not all of the kind of the fortune companies have dedicated third party risk teams. Yeah. Back in the day, it was, uh, what did you fall under? Did, was it falls yeah. fall under like just right? No, security? I mean, I would say, the way I've seen it, um, the CISO was the first person in the company to get third-party risk resources, period. Um, more sophisticated companies that we work with in the Fortune 100 have begun to broaden third-party risk outside of the CISO's organization. But I would say predominantly, um, when I started, it was almost exclusively a cybersecurity problem. And, and I would still say, I can't think of a company where the majority of their third-party risk isn't cyber, right? Or that's where the majority of the effort. I think companies are just getting smarter to say, well, what about our ESG risk, reputational risk, financial health risk, especially, you know, with um, the ups, the downswings in the economy. I, I think companies are getting broader, but it always started with, with information security, Interesting. And back then, there were, as you mentioned, there were not as 
many frameworks as there are today. I mean, today there's right. just so many. In your perspective, you know, how did these evolve like over time? Because sure. you mentioned there were a couple of like the first couple ones that like one HIPAA was, you know, healthcare, GLBA was financial. But then they were starting to be more and more and the regulatory yeah. environment really changed. So what was the kind of the driver force behind it? And do we actually need so many? I mean, we have, to, we have <laughs> quite a few. That's a million dollar question. So um, in terms of frameworks, yeah, I mean, GLBA and the FFIEC guidance provided a good deal of specificity for their banks on kind of where to start. It's interesting on the banking side because we've got new regulatory guidance that will come out probably, I would say, late this spring. It went into comment period in the fall. So we will now have in banking a consolidated set of third-party risk guidance, which I think will be um, important for that industry and for its third parties. Um, we still have mostly ambiguous frameworks in the other industries, but you know the U.S. predominantly has led through industry-specific frameworks in cyber, um, and so in third party, at least, I think the consolidation of the banking framework. Um, will be a start. Now, whether organizations like the SEC or FINRA will attempt to adopt something aligned to what the banks are doing is, is TBD. Um, and then I think you you do have frameworks that have attempted to be industry agnostic, right? And, and I would say are um, like the SIG. So if you look at the SIG, I think that's the closest to what we have in third-party risk to an industry agnostic framework. Um, and lots of evolutions of that being owned by a nonprofit, by a for-profit, and now, you know, owned by one trust, um, yeah, technology company. So, um, but, but no, I mean, I do think in alignment with everything in cyber, there will continue to be mostly industry-aligned frameworks for third-party risk. Yeah, and, and, you know, standards are, you know, they're good. I mean, it's uh, there's a reason why we, we can buy an off-the-shelf electrical devices and plug it in because somebody decided that, uh, you know, 110 volts is a good idea. The socket doesn't look the same. <laughs> yes. and, but it, especially if you're talking about SIG and talk about these frameworks, it seems like every organization almost have their own variation of it. Or they That's use true. You know, some of it or like not at all or have their own, they massage it. That's to, true. And, know, and why I is think that? Yeah, we've seen ebbs and flows of, you know, what's worked. And um, I've seen plenty of companies that have boomeranged from using a standard, using a consortium, doing their own thing. Um, and, and honestly, the fact of the matter is, is that um, we kind of realized, I don't know, let's call it six years ago, uh, I, I, that's, that's not fair. So the SIG has been around for a long time, right? And there could have been a move where we all decided the SIG is going to be it. So Jill, you talked about specifically about the nuances around, um, the various, uh, type of assessments or frameworks the company used that mm -hmm. even though there are starting to, um, have standards evolve, Every company uh, kind of uses its own version, and you have a very right. unique point of view because you are dealing with many, many types of organizations. So you can kind of see um, the view that not a lot of people have uh, when they're like only working in their particular organization. 
Absolutely. And I think, you know, the, the one thing that's really interesting is the varying levels of investment in third-party risk across the different industries and companies. So we see some of the more sophisticated companies where they'll have one full-time equivalent per hundred third parties, where some companies have one full-time equivalent for 2,000 employees. And, and I think that's that's where the disparity starts. Um, you know, when companies have a smaller team or they want a more focused effort, we do recommend that they have a very focused questionnaire. Um, because, I mean, one CISO told me one time, you, once I ask a question, I can't unsee that answer, right? If they told me that they didn't have an intrusion prevention system uh, in my questionnaire and I just missed it on my review or I didn't follow up when my system flagged it as a finding. Um, I can't unsee that answer. They told me. And if there's a breach that's associated with that, I knew. And so I, I do think companies should have very targeted third-party risk programs that are appropriate to them, to their risk tolerance and to the risk profile of a particular third party. And, and that's where, you know, you want to say, all right, how do we align the standards? How do we use standard questions. So I think more and more companies are using a subset of the SIG or tying things to a, a certain frameworks. And then you have other companies that are just going a totally different route. I mean, there's several consortiums out there between TrueSight, KY3P, and CyberGRX that have their own frameworks. Um, OneTrust has its own framework. So I also think you have for-profit organizations that are driving differing standards, which is just creating a situation where there's not much um, in, there's not much standardization for the third parties, right? They're less likely to maintain an updated SIG if the SIG isn't getting asked for as much. Um, yeah, it's so interesting. Yeah. And then so the, the states, depending on where you are, you know, they yep. have their own requirements. So it's a, it's a mishmash. And then what happened is, you know, like everybody does business with everyone else. So it's like a, now you're under which regulatory, um, you know, framework that you have to follow. Yeah. This is why it's so difficult. Um, and it's so interesting what you mentioned that you can't, you know, is the comment that you cannot unsee. It's also true, uh, you know, when when an incident, you know, for cyber insurance, right? So you have to prove that you've done the the necessary. So if you've seen something, right? So that, that kind yeah. of goes. Um, Absolutely. You know. Yeah, so it put you under. It creates uh, an exposure, yeah, mm -hmm. that that could be unintended if you send out a questionnaire and don't have the resources to really track it to resolution. And yeah, and we, we talked a bit about that. So when you start, in, so this is really interesting. So when you start engaging, and by the way, they that continuum that you describe is really amazing, right? So uh, you know, it kind of sunk in with me that the fact that there's, you know, one company has that many, you know, FTEs for per. Uh, vendor and then the other company has a very very that by itself so you know i guess from a maturity level that yep. by itself will give you like almost a the ultimate indicator in terms of how many uh, you know how many you got it. but but it's um it's expensive right and we talk about you know having it a full-time employee uh to manage th that many vendors and i'm also assuming that um because of that you know define a vendor Right. How many vendors in this like the 80-20 rule? Which vendors are you, you know, is, is, is the vendor you've done one transaction, two transactions? How do you define that? Um, so when you when you first have an engagement, how do you assess where they are in the level of maturity? And sure. of course, you cannot just, 
give them a whole laundry list of things to do, where do you, uh, you know, how do you prioritize or help them prioritize in terms of where do you need to go? Yeah. So, um, you know, in terms of how we look at companies, Crow has a framework that we use to go over what are the key jobs to be done in third-party risk. So we go through each of those jobs and say, are you doing it effectively and effectively, efficient, and sustainably? Um, and so that's that's how we do our maturity assessments. What we find is that companies have, to, to answer your first question, which is how do I even figure out which of my vendors I care about? What we typically recommend is that you start at the top. So top of the funnel is everybody I paid, paid me, or that I have otherwise a contractual relationship with that is not a customer. So it's basically all relationships that a company has that are not a customer. Then from there, you're going to pare down to what the third-party risk team, what we call the book of work. What is the book of work that the third-party team is responsible for? So like, let's say I have 20,000 payees, but some of those are Panera and the Gardener and people who are not going to be considered in my book of work because they don't meet that criteria. I might have 2,000 or 5,000 in my book of work. And then within the book of work, we look for companies to say, all right, what's the appropriate treatment for the companies in my book of work? How hands-on am I going to be? How am I going to tier and classify? And then what rules am I going to apply to different tiers? And so that's really where some of that discretion comes into play, right? There's some companies who might say, no, all 5,000 get a questionnaire. Some may say, I'm going to use a cybersecurity ratings product like Security Scorecard or something like that to rate X percent, and then the rest are going to get questionnaires. So people have a different strategy of how they're going to tackle what we call their book of work um, once they determine that. Um, there's still a lot of companies that are uh, whose book of work is very ad hoc. It's just who security hears about. And that would be a major sort of maturity red flag is, do you have a systemic way to go from all of our relationships down to our book of work or is it just hey if i hear about it i hear about it which is amazing to me like that does you know <laughs> that they are so reactive and even when you do the assessment it cannot be static right because things have, are very dynamic like let's say you've you've yeah. onboarded a vendor and they might be insignificant to do a relatively speaking small you know transaction but you know that vendor within within six months as um you know all of a sudden became a you know cardinal part of your process so how do you how do you yeah. then you know how do you um you know make make sure that the they you know these don't fall through the cracks what's your yeah. what's the that's a good point i would say companies that have it really figured out have their um contracting process very centralized so change orders statements of work with a particular vendor, new agreements, purchase orders, et cetera, to the degree that a company has centralized how they buy things, it becomes a lot easier to detect changes in inherent risk at the time of change. Um, so there are a lot of our clients who have really trained their procurement teams and legal teams to top line flag things that should be routed to InfoSec um, systematically or like I said, through trained professionals that are reviewing these documents. Um, some of our clients have to flow through all statements of work and change orders to take a look at them and make sure that the risk hasn't changed. And other clients just do it in an annual process. So once a year, they revisit their tiering and, and determine that it's correct. But yes, so you're right. Not only understanding your book of work and having a systemic way of being notified of new relationships, but how do you get looped in when there's a contractual change? 
Yeah, and even and even the the monetary value is not necessarily indicator of of, of the course. risk, right? Because I've heard that uh, you know yeah. talking about startups, you can have like a relatively speaking a startup that is discounted their services just to get it, you know, and they're doing like some fi- like financial transaction. Right. So you've, yeah. you've come across that as well, where they're high risk. I usually see that value. as like the sign of ultimate desperation. If I'm, if I'm tearing, if I have a top line filter based on spend, that's usually the sign of ultimate desperation that I just have no way of determining my population, to be totally honest. We see it less and less. We see it less and less. I, some, some people will have, will set like super low. Like if it's under $500, I know it's got to be Panera. Um, but, I would say we see it less and less where where um, spend is a key factor in in book of work or tiering consideration. Yeah, it's super interesting. And and then there's a notion of um, right now that I've seen as well is that the continuous monitoring, right? So that's yeah. a, that's a term. Maybe talk to yeah. me about what does that mean, especially well, for you. Yeah, and it's been really interesting. So you know, Bitsight and Security Scorecard have been around for it's got to be six, seven years now. So um, they're pretty early on the game. If you think third-party risk has really only been a discipline for 18, 20 years, um, you know, we got those ratings tools. And and that I think the really interesting thing is people will say, well, I do I do a questionnaire or do I do a ratings? And to me, they're measuring two different things. When you do a questionnaire, you're really trying to understand, does the company have an information security program? And is it mature and is it operating? All right, so you're going to get baseline indicators. You might get their SOC report. You might get a copy of their policy, you know, get an understanding of their environment. And then the ratings product is really going to give you, you know, public, publicly available indicators of how well that program is operating. So to me, we look at it in conjunction. Sometimes we'll look at companies that have not one written policy, no SOC report, and you look at their actual controls as implemented on their system and they're pristine. They're, they're fantastic. They're highly mature. They just, they're not formal, right? So they have no maturity in information security governance, but they have a decently operating function program. And as a company, I might be okay with that or not okay with that, but that, that would be the picture. You have other companies who are very mature from a governance perspective. They have a pristine SOC report, all these policies and procedures, and in actuality, they got Swiss cheese in, in operation, right? They've got unpatched systems that are under some sort of exception. They've got, you know, poor practices and development. In actuality, again, great policy, poor practices. So to me, the two work in conjunction to say what is the maturity of the program, and then what's the operating effectiveness? How does this, how does this company look from a cyber perspective to the internet? But I don't. I don't think you can really make a judgment on a company and their cyber posture without both pieces. Yeah, it's, and it's super interesting. And you mentioned that, uh, you know, you have kind of the two uh, ends of the scale where, uh, you know, you can have all the certification, but not necessarily mean that, that you're secure um, and have a great posture right. and vice versa. But but you have to prove it somehow because you don't have to, not everybody's like you that can see between the lines and sure. figure it out. A lot of times it's just, okay, show me this, this SOC 2 report and that's yep. all I have to to assess you. Uh, yep. And by the way, uh, even SOC two is a fairly kind of new, you know, new way of of proving that you're, um, you know, you're kind of in compliant. And a lot of companies see it. this as a competitive advantage, right? Especially the SaaS platforms, because they Absolutely. get Absolutely. You know. Yeah. I, I got to tell you, you get a lot of of lift from a SOC two. 
I think people, I think honestly, when we sit down with a company to say what should be in your questionnaire, what we're asking about is what controls do you care about and how are we going to prove that they're working at your vendors? And so when you look at a SOC 2, you know, when I started in third-party risk and not everybody had a a well-designed SOC report, we used to have to fly out to data centers, walk around and note that there's cameras and locks and all kinds of basic controls that just don't happen anymore because that's well covered in the SOC report. We used to pull tickets to make sure that they were documenting changes, right? There are so many controls that the SOC 2 does a really good job of covering. There are other controls that you might want to dig deeper. My favorite example is penetration testing. In a SOC 2, it will confirm that a company performed a penetration test. That's it. That one was performed. If there were 17 high findings in the penetration test and the network looked terrible to the testers, it will show up in the SOC report just the same as if the company had a pristine penetration test. So it's a perfect example where you just have to figure out what testing vehicle is good for what, right? Um, I, I actually think the PCI attestations can be really good for di- understanding segmentation and network structure, cryptography controls. So, I mean, I think professionals that are trained in third-party risk, they kind of know where to look. And and there are lots of great groups like the Third-Party Risk Association is the one we're a member of, shared assessments that can help people get more training and education because really you know, what we do in third-party risk is we understand what the company's priorities are from a cyber perspective, and then we know what to ask and where to look at the third party. So interesting. So you're telling me that you don't miss the frequent flyer miles and the (laughs) the high status on your hotel? Oh, uh, well, you know, since COVID, none of us are are free. Well, at least I'm not anymore. Um, (laughs) No, I think we just, we get to have better, companies get to use uh, those kinds of expenses more practically, right? We connect with people more at conferences and yeah, no, I don't miss those early days in my career of doing, uh, doing vendor on sites. And and I would say, you know, it's, it's an interesting pandemic phenomenon because many, many companies performed on sites prior Mm -hmm. to the pandemic. And we've had some really interesting conversations in the last month of, are you going to go back to it? Did you see enough value for the cost? And you know, I, we do still say, I, I would say there's a lot of companies who believe that sitting across the table from their vendors is important to them and that they want to have that as part of their program, but that they want it to be a strategic conversation instead of just sitting and talking through their controls. And, you know, how you perceived, you know, when you used to do these assessments, you know, typically this, you know, like, for example, there's a bit of a fear from auditors, right? What are you going to find? <laughs> you know, were you kind of the same, the same way? Like, oh my God. It's, oh, I would it's say, you know, those of us who are trained in doing assessments, mm-hmm. I, uh, I was on an assessment call with my team yesterday, actually, where the, uh, the, the third party was saying like, um, I'm kind of nervous that you're asking that question. What was I asking about key management or something, or the team was asking about key management and, um, uh, yeah, I was saying, oh, well, you know, I didn't expect this data to still be here, right? I thought this data would have been purged. And so because it still exists, we want to reflect compensating control. So I would say a good assessor and, you know, we train our people to understand going in that it's going to be uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So we, we go in assuming and we train our, <laughs> we train our assessors in what do you do if the third party is hostile or uncooperative? Um, so that's a big part of our training. On the reverse side, companies more and more, I mean, Crow included, have people whose job it is to respond to these kinds of assessments. That's their total job, right? Is And so, so in, I would say every year that goes by, it gets easier because companies hire people to respond to assessments. Everybody knows the drill. We can get through the assessments quicker. Um, it's, it's a lot easier than, than it was when we were just working with whatever, you know, whoever pulled the short straw as far as the CISOs directs. Do you, uh, do you ever do an incognito assessments where you show uh, up in disguise? That's no, oh, early in my career I did. <laughs> I, I was on the social engineering team when I started. <laughs> so yeah, a lot of war stories from back then, but not anymore. So not I would love to jump maybe like here, maybe some, some stories sure. of like horror stories. But before we jump into that and hold that thought, there are times where you, depending on like the, you know, the um, importance for that company, let's say it's a small mom and pop shop or whatever sure. that's, that's really critical. And it can be a, like a payment processor, for example, and they have like gaping holes in the security, but don't, do not have the expertise. A lot of times okay. um, the, the, I guess the enterprise has to you know step in and assist them, right? Because they don't have the expertise, but they still, they can't let it just like slide. Is that yeah. true? Is that because I've seen that, you know, happening before? Well, so you're saying the situation is that the company is very mature in cyber, but the vendor is not or the third party. is Yes. Not. And the vendor. Yeah. yeah. And the vendors themselves don't have the capacity to fix, you know, some of the holes and then they have to rely. So the enterprise will like send, you know, the, kind of the teams to help them fix some of the issues. Um, yeah because they just cannot help themselves. I mean, we definitely see that with our Fortune 100 customers mm -hmm. where they're pivoting. And I mean, we've seen all kinds of companies, especially in financial services, take ownership stakes, do all kinds of crazy things. I would say a couple things. First of all, I think the sophistication of the security tooling within the cloud um, has made a lot of the traditional objections that a small company might have. Um, really unfounded. Um, back in the day, if we, if a company didn't have an intrusion prevention system, I'll just stick with that. They would be like, oh my gosh, we got to get it in the budget. We got to order it, ship it, install it. You know, now it's just a money conversation. Like you're in Amazon, here's the name of the service that you could turn on, right? Or the virtual appliance that you could install tomorrow. And then honestly, it becomes a money conversation where the vendor is saying, well, this is going to cost me X dollars and the client's saying, well, it's super important to me. And they're negotiating in some way, um, you know, ideally at the time of the initial contract to say, all right, well, we'll pay you a thousand dollars more and you agree to install this control. So I, again, I, I think there's, a, I think cloud, you know, gets a bad name in terms of third-party risk and clients will call us and say, well, is cloud covered appropriately in my program and how many vendors are on the cloud? And I do think a lot of customers still have anxiety on vendors that are hosted on cloud platforms. And I will tell you, I think that with the right vendor, they can actually be more successful cyber-wise in Amazon and Azure than they can be in a colo because there's just so many more tools at their fingertips you know, volume, volume encryption, segregation of duties, security group. I mean, there it, the list just goes on and on. And so I do think startups that are in the cloud can be more successful if they have the right personnel. 
Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny because now, uh, you know, back in the day, it was like, oh, we don't want our data to be somewhere else. Yeah, you know, now, we don't want it in the cloud. Now there's no choice because these companies are just, that's that's what they do. But, you know, with complexity, there's also inherent risk. I mean, there's a lot of cases where, you know, that's just true. as, you know, a misconfigure S3 bucket, all of a sudden, we all the customer's data is all out. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, tell me a bit that's about the uh, the... You know, there's some stories where you had to have some difficult <laughs> conversations because I'm sure, listen, I'm sure you've had to have those difficult conversations with people that not, yeah. you know, especially when you're dealing with, uh, with, you know, findings that are, you know, glaring and you had to go both, I guess, both on the, uh, you know, speak to executives, right? Sure. Either for the vendors and also the, for the, you know, for the actual customer. So how do you handle those? And maybe without naming names, of course, and sure. obfuscating the details, maybe some stories would be great. Yeah, so we usually recommend that clients have what we call a watch list. And the watch list would be, is, is a heat map of sorts that we use to say companies are both inherently important to you, they have poor controls, and they don't have a strong trajectory of reducing that risk. Um, so and it's like so, the most wanted list, but on third party. Yeah, list. you got yeah. it. And <laughs> and the heat map kind of goes, you know, on the X axis, how important are they to you? And on the Y axis, how bad did they do? I, I don't want to ask if I have a vendor that's only moderately important to me. I really only need their controls to be moderately good, right? But if it's a high importance vendor and they're both have poor controls and are uncooperative. Um, we got a problem. Then they're on the watch list. What I what I call on the watch list. It doesn't mean you have to fire them tomorrow, but we got to do something about this. Um, so I think the concept of a watch list has been really powerful. I will tell you, I would guess that at least forty percent, if not half, of customer of uh, third parties that get put on watch lists that I see is because they're not cooperative. Um, the third party is not cooperative with the. Uh, controls assessment. They're just, we're just blind, right? So let's say it's a vendor with a significant internet presence and they're not willing to share even an executive summary of their pen test. We have no idea how their testing is going in terms of vulnerabilities. And let's say their security scorecard report is a C or a D, right? And they just won't engage on this topic. I mean, that is half of the vendors that go onto a watch list. It's because they just won't engage. They mm -hmm. feel that's very private. And is that, well, that too, or, or is it because they received like a, a, you know, a SIG questionnaire with 300 questions and <laughs> they just possible. put it at the top Again, of the like, bottom of the pile? It's, it's with, possible. That happens sometimes. They I mean, we, it off and it's coffee stains yeah. on it, you know, after a while. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, I think there are certainly a lot of companies who have assessments fatigue, who are trying to find ways of managing the volume of assessments coming in and the costs associated with those assessments. So there are customers that are third parties that have unsuccessfully tried to charge back for assessments or, or will contact them and they'll say, you know, your hold time is 10 and a half weeks or something crazy. So that certainly happens. I think com some companies are really challenged to help, to help re to respond to customer requests. And that's something that, Honestly, it's a service our practice added a couple of years ago where we help customers respond. I'm, I'm sorry, we help third parties respond to requests, right? Because that, to me, um, the consulting on that has been just as interesting as the other side of how do I set up a function that can, you know, take in the qu requests, you know, um, yeah, get and them answered you, and responded timely. 
And and there's a lot of and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but there's a lot of duplication as well because a lot of the frameworks have Got overlap, it. right? And yep. so how do you you may have already answered a a question somewhere and done all the work and due diligence, and then you have to all of a sudden another question here comes in, and it's not quite, you know, yeah. they, because again because it's not a you know, complete standard, so you know they ask the same question and a variation of it so how do you manage that and how did mm -hmm. you de deduplicate i'm sure there's something that because you work you know for a large company that has mm -hmm. you know efficiencies and, and effectiveness yeah. on top of mind absolutely i mean yes i think many companies now have some sort of a knowledge base that they use to help them respond to questionnaires um so i think that that and 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 there are technology products out there that can help you um, you know, keep, keep yourself organized. But honestly, most that I see are still just using pretty basic mechanisms of, of information management, like SharePoint and things like that. Nothing crazy, but many companies will have a knowledge base. And then I do see companies increasingly create a central role within cyber that's responding to the questionnaires. And there are people that have, you know, built careers off of that customer relationship, um, from a cybersecurity perspective, they're cyber experts. They know what's important to customers and they're helping their software company, you know, um, market itself by um, answering the customer's requests when it comes to cyber. Yeah. And, you know, a relationship like anywhere else it always goes a long way, right? So if, yeah. if the vendors already uh, dealt with somebody who does a third party risk at the enterprise and they have that prior relationship answering questions. And a lot of times it's also the Delta, right? Because let's say they That's get a it. questionnaire, right? It's not, they don't have to re-answer the whole thing. They can just right. take some of the changes. Um, what about, um, would you ever come across cases where, you know, it was just a, a make or break, like they absolutely had to fix something. And, and what yeah, was that conversation like? All the time. Yes. Um, the So I guess I would make one plug here for making sure your third-party risk process is pre-contract. If your process is post-contract, you're already one foot in the hole. But our clients that have pre-contract, it's amazing. Stuff gets fixed, right? Like there so, are issues and they get fixed because so they have a sign. Hold on. It's a really important point. So why don't you define that, the kind of pre and post? Sure, just, yeah. Just so people understand. If yeah, I mean, it's really hard. It takes a certain level of maturity, but the ideal situation is that the business says to you, we want to buy something. What do you think of this vendor, right? And that you have you know, and this is where we work with companies, right, to just do on-demand assessments, regardless of personnel availability on the company side. But like, basically, it's like, we need an assessment back in four weeks. And, you know, during that time, we'll be going through the legal process, which takes companies a while anyways. And then before we sign the contract, we want to know that security is okay with this third party. It almost, almost sounds to me like a, a contractual nightmare. You know, for some companies, <laughs> if they don't have the ducks in a row, like it would be yeah. very difficult. Um, I think the you know, at, an, at a company that doesn't have maybe as mature a program, it really, the way I've seen it work is from mutual agreement from the general counsel and the uh, security team. Mm -hmm. And procurement. Well, if, if you have procurement, that's always ideal too. But um, yeah, getting getting security notified early and often when a new vendor is going to be brought on board. And then the other thing I would guess I've, I've seen is what, what I call conditional approval. So let's say it's like, yeah, we don't have four weeks. We have 
two days, right? What What's my conditional approval process going to be? You have to minimally show me a soccer report, a pen test, and a clean security scorecard report, something like that, right? So I would think if you're going to move your program pre-contract, just think a little bit about what does conditional approval look like if you only have two days? Because no one's getting a questionnaire and assessment done in two days. Yeah, not unless, uh, you know, they're doing this very, you know, fishy manner. And, uh, <laughs> right, you're right. Not unless they're really, uh, you know, they're doing like a full fudging, assessment. Yeah, fudging the numbers. So, uh, as always, a um, an ounce of, of prevention is worth like a pound of, of cure. So, right. do you provide a best practices, you know, for the vendors to make sure that they're you know, that, that, you know, they don't have to show up, you know, before an assessment is done and, and struggle to do that, but just have, you know, again, all the ducks in a row in terms of what needs to be done from, uh, you know, cybersecurity compliance, uh, you know, um, training for the employees on the security assessments and awareness and all that. Uh, do you provide yeah. that to, uh, to your vendors? You're saying for our customers that are vendors. Yes. Yeah. Correct. Yeah, I think we've been working with their internal teams to try to just um, make the process easier on everybody, right? Understanding what the assessor is asking for, um, helping them keep their data more organized and, and um, yeah, make sure the cadence of updates of the documentation is, you know, th that everything's kept up to date because that really becomes a nightmare if they're not able to keep their documentation up to date. Right. And uh, let's say something does happen that we've seen yeah. a, a movement um you know, government now announced that there's a there's a uh, compliance requirement for breach notification, right? Um, yeah, that's right. What What's your take on that? You know, if, I'm assuming that you get a lot of questions around that because of your role. Um, yeah. Maybe I actually uh, think yeah. The so the updated banking guidance around breach notification. I mean, first of all, I think the guidance is pretty narrow. I mean, you're talking major events that they've basically set some timelines too, where there was not as strict of timelines before. Um, I think in terms of our, our banking clients, it makes their life a lot easier and it makes their life a lot easier because in the contract negotiations, because they have a firm timeline, mm -hmm. they pass on that firm timeline and they don't have to have as much back and forth with the vendor. Like it is what it is. They're regulatorily required to have that sort of reporting timeline. Um, it's so narrow. I mean, the number of incidents that will fall under this new guidance amongst a company's whole set of th of incidents is a sliver, I, in, in my estimation, because there has to be a significant impact on the customer base for them, for the incident to rise to the level of, of qualifying under the new banking guidance. Um, so, but I do think like anything that helps companies be more consistent and on the same page with their vendors as to what's expected. Um, like I said, I'm a huge fan of what the regulators are doing in making one banking guidance instead of all separate. I think that that's really important. Anything we can do to standardize and get on the same page, I think is at least by industry. I mean, if, if nothing else by industry, um, it would be great if some, Someday in the future, we were more consistent across industries. But at least, you know, the fact that we're getting out of an era where we have, you know, three different banking regulations for the FFI or for the FDIC, Fed, and OCC, it feels like progress. Yeah, and it's interesting because it looks like the, you know, these uh, requirements are not going to ease up. It seems like if anything, it's going to continue uh, with other areas. Um, and then from a compliance perspective, you mentioned like ESG and other types of compliance yeah. framework that are coming into effect. 
Um, so, Julia, you know, we, I feel like we, we can continue. We probably have to do a second part of this because we're, <laughs> we're like, um, seriously. Uh, but let me ask you this. Um, sure. You know, what are kind of the top, um, you know, from your perspective, the top three things an organization can do to make sure that they the third party risk program is effective and they're getting Absolutely. the most of even even from your perspective working with crow as yeah. as a, as a service provider um and then the the flip side of that question is for the vendors themselves you know what it is they can do to make sure that they are effectively responding to um the, this question is or not compliant Got it. Question. yes so I would say the number one thing I would recommend doing is making sure you understand your portfolio and your ratios, like I talked about. So um, I think as a CISO, making sure you feel comfortable that you understand the population of third parties that you should care about amongst your payees and contracted companies is really important. And then considering the FTE ratio, um, either in total or, you know, by different tiers of third parties, um, laying that out. I think setting the expectation along this sort of same theme that if a company doubles the number of its high-risk vendors, you're going to have to double the amount of personnel dedicated to third-party risk. Now, with that said, then, you know, I think the second part is identifying how you can build efficiency in your program. Okay, let's just say that I, I am going to double my number of vendors. I feel good about my population and my tiering but I still just have the same resourcing I had before. What are ways we can build economies through technology, through data feeds, um, through optimizing the program um, in order to really bring all those pieces together? You know, and that's and that's part of what Crow does is some of that outsourcing and co-sourcing to say what, what resourcing is appropriate for and, and technology and automation is appropriate to optimize my program for my portfolio. And then... I think the last thing I would say as far as the, something simple that people miss is your program should reduce risk. I think too many programs get into this cadence where it's just a thumbs up, thumbs down versus, yes, you can move forward with this vendor under the condition that they fix these eight things. Um, so the, pro the program should not just be a thumbs up, thumbs down approval. There should be a concept of issue management. How does an issue get generated? How does it get remediated? Um, and, and that remediation tested. So, um, you know, that is something that we work with companies on that there's lots of great technology that can help you with is how do I prove that I am not only the gatekeeper, but I am reducing risk? Because um, we see just too many programs where when it's a thumbs up, thumbs down culture and the business unit First of all, if, if you're able to sort of kill deals, that really creates a distance with the business unit and information security because you're potentially stopping them from doing something that would grow the business. Second, a lot of times then there's just this risk acceptance process where nothing happens, right? And, and honestly, a lot of the vendors will work with you to reduce their risk to implement controls. I've had security officers tell me that they love when customers have findings because it gets them more budget, right? Like <laughs> it gets them more focus. Like, well, our customers want this. So I've got to hire another analyst or buy this tool or. So I just think like having an issues management program and third-party risk for a, for a cyber team is so critical. Yeah. And I love that. I love the, 
you know, the collaborative type of approach because it is, it's a, it has to be a win-win. It can't be like what you mentioned, that gray area where not just pass or fail, but it lets us help you, you know, creates that, um, you know, report where saying, okay, we're in this together. It's not just about us, you know, just uh, trying to fail you or trying to get you to, to fix things that we're, we're in this collaborative effort. Now, from the vendor perspective, what can they do to uh, to be more effective and, and uh, you know, efficient to uh, respond to these? Absolutely. I, I would say, number one, create a centralized team that's going to manage response, you know, um, and make sure that that team has the ability to flex resourcing at parts of the year where you might get more more questionnaires. Let's say just from a sales perspective, you sell more in the fourth quarter. That means you're going to get more questionnaires in the fourth quarter. You got to think about how you're going to scale that function. But setting up a central function to, that basically has expertise in responding to questionnaires is just so critical. Um, and, and, you know, and then having that function have access to a knowledge base that's updated. Um, and, and I think both of those things really get to the core of this idea that a company feels that participating in the third-party risk management process is important. I do think it's important. Companies don't always come back and say, we didn't pick you because your security assessment sucked. I, I, I don't think any of our clients are that transparent that if we return a really bad assessment report, they are transparent with the vendors. So that's the reason they lost the deal. Um, But I think smart software companies and, and vendors are realizing that that is a factor as to why deals get won and lost and that they want to basically put their best foot forward to their customers. Narrow-minded vendors will will get very caught up on their privacy, on whether the assessment team is going to publish all of their stuff to the internet. And they get, and, and that's certainly important. Making sure your data is protected during the assessment process is extremely important. But I think they get so caught up on that. They don't see it as a marketing moment, as a customer service moment, um, as their chance to sort of show how strong their program is. Yeah. And there's, there's two comments here. One is to use that as a competitive advantage, right? So Absolutely. Time is the killer of all transactions. So if you have all your ducks in a row and you're, you know, you're, you can prove that you're compliant. And I also think that if there is a finding that's, and then depending on how you respond to that, you have the ability to shine because if everything is fine, you know, nothing happens, you know, but if you can have an attestment to how quality of, of service almost to, to the security group that allows you to go out and fix the, whatever findings there were, that's also a testament. Um, Absolutely. Right. Your customers have options, mm-hmm. you know, and if you, especially if you have an issue management process where the business unit has to track this vendor on a watch list, they'll just find somebody else. They will. I mean, it's the companies I've work I work with that actually care about whether their vendors are secure. The business units just don't want to deal with it. So if if the if the vendor won't play ball, they'll just, you know, <laughs> they'll just move on to somebody else. <laughs> so Jill, thank you very much. Um you know, I I can't tell you first of all you've done a phenomenal job answering all those questions. It was completely unscripted. And you make it sound <laughs> so interesting, you know, um, and uh, well, you came you. you came such a long way since you were laying out those cables at the data centers. Uh, and, yeah. And, uh, and I can't wait to see where you, where you, uh, you know, what you do next. So much, much appreciate it. And Absolutely. Um, looking forward to maybe doing like a part B or maybe we dissect some other uh, sections because uh, I think there's a lot of 
nuances there's a lot of um, you know parts of it, third-party risk is such a vast area um and uh, anyway either way uh what's the easiest way for us to uh for people to get in touch with you for absolutely for advice uh, mentorship yeah. or whatever the case may be well um the you know I say LinkedIn is probably the easiest. I'm I'm pretty active on LinkedIn, so if anyone has a question for me, just shoot me a message on LinkedIn. I think that's the easiest. Perfect. So, Jill, thank you very much for taking the time to chat today. All right. Thanks for all for uh, joining today, and uh, stay safe out there, both online and uh, you know offline as well. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. And uh, well, are we going to see? Uh, um, you know, are we going to see Dublin or is it? She's off that? somewhere, unfortunately. <laughs> she got bored with us. <laughs> well, maybe next time we'll, we'll schedule her to, uh, for an appearance.